How good of you to be here tonight in spite of the tube strike, the new budget, and day 10 of Wimbledon. <laughs> I'm grateful to all my hosts from Canterbury Press and the Cathedral of St. Paul for giving me this chance to drop the stone of darkness into the collective pond of your imaginations and see what happens. No one's ripples are exactly the same because no one's depths are exactly the same. And yet it's hard to find anyone who doesn't recoil just a little from the idea of learning to walk in the dark. Whether the darkness they have in mind is the literal, physical kind, or the more figurative, spiritual kind, why would anyone want to learn to walk in that? So that's what I'm up to tonight, seeing if I can do anything to redeem darkness even a little in your minds, though there's no telling what the word means to you. You may not know yourself. Fear of the dark is so psychically embedded for most of us and so culturally, sometimes even religiously supported that almost none of us questions it anymore even when it causes us to miss half of what it means to be human, even when it robs us of the treasures of darkness, even when it leaves us helpless during the night times of our lives, believing we have been abandoned by a God who may actually prefer working the night shift. Do you remember who first taught you about the dark, whether it was to be loved or feared, in what ways? I give my parents high marks. They raised me a long, long time ago. But they let me and my sisters play outside until far, far after dark, until really the only light in the yard was the golden square coming through the kitchen window where we could see my mother making supper. They took us on camping trips where we learned to go days without electric lights. They did not lock us in closets for punishment. Perhaps best of all, they read us the unedited versions of Grimm's fairy tales, which were far what you might call darker than the very hungry caterpillar, which has been on the bestsellers list of Amazon.co.uk for seven years now, long way from Grimm. In retrospect, the only thing my parents did wrong was to try and convince me that inside the house, my fear of the dark was just my imagination. After one or the other of them had kissed me goodnight and turned off the light by my bed, there was always a brief moment of bliss while my eyes adjusted to the blue moonlight coming through the window, at least on a uncloudy night, because I had polyester sheets and blankets, I could sometimes make sparks fly between them. <laughs> but then eventually, after the smell of my parents had receded, my mother's menthol cigarettes, my father's Old Spice shaving lotion, once I could feel their protection dissipate, as they moved down the hallway away from me, once it became apparent to me that they had checked me off their list of things to do for the night, then all the loose darkness in that room started to collect in the usual places, in the closet and under the bed, pulling itself together with such malevolent gravity that I could not keep my 
imagination away from it. I surely did not want to see it, whatever it was, but not seeing it only made it worse. If I'd been able to see it, then I would have known what it was, what I was dealing with. But because I could not see anything much, I was dealing with all possible threats at once. When they or it had achieved critical mass, when my heart was making so much noise that I couldn't accurately determine which side of my bed the thing beneath me was going to reach up and grab me from, I did what most children do. I yelled for my parents, who were good enough to come, though they could not keep the condescension out of their voices. There is nothing under your bed, my father assured me, getting down on his knees to look. Nothing but clothes in your closet, sweetie, my mother said, opening the door to show me. Then in loving chorus, as they stood in my door with their arms around each other, it's just your imagination. Now go back to sleep. They did the best they could. But since imagination is the place meaning is made, once reason has turned out the lights, it was lame advice. If I had called them to clear my room of angels, would they have told me it was just my imagination? If I'd told them God was there with me at night, would they have told me it was just my imagination? There's nothing just about the human imagination at any age. It is where we store our defining images, pictures of who we are and who our neighbors are and what the world is like. It's where we keep the pictures that tell us what love and death and springtime look like. It's also how we conceive of things beyond perceiving, such as the divine or the devil, the hereafter or the soul. Later, when I took myself to church, where my parents did not take me, but I was resourceful, found a way to go with some friends, I learned in that first church, by deduction, that darkness had no place at all in the life of faith. God was light, heaven was full of light, the soul was the light of the body, Jesus was the light of the world. Darkness lay in the other direction altogether. Satan was the prince of darkness. Hell was the outer darkness where the damned wailed and gnashed their teeth. The children of light had nothing in common with the children of darkness. If I wanted to be saved, I learned at 16, it was time to turn my back on anything I meant by dark and darkness once and for all. This early teaching, I think, probably saved me in all kinds of ways, but it also seeded my imagination with frightening visions of darkness. It taught me also that the filing system in the imagination, which is lower down, I think, than the frontal cortex, maybe, the filing system down there wasn't all that good. Once I had decided or learned that everything bad was dark, I set up a huge file system and just labeled it dark. And I started putting everything I was afraid of in there. I put everything I didn't want to talk about or think about in there. When both of my grandmothers died, I put death in the darkness file. 
during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I put the entire Soviet Union in there. When I hit adolescence, sexuality went in the dark file. I could go on, but you probably get the idea. I don't know what is in your file, but it's always worth looking through there. Once I had been persuaded that everything dark was bad, that virus got loose in my filing system and infected every other folder in there. Long story short, I gave what I now think of as full solar spirituality my best shot. I divided reality up the way I had been taught, turning my face toward the light, my back to the dark. I did not ask questions that had no answers. I avoided people who read Friedrich Nietzsche. I stayed on the authorized path marked this way to God until, through age and experience, it was no longer possible to pretend that everything necessary for my salvation lay on that path. In spite of all the loving guidance I had been given, and I think it was all loving, it became clear, finally, that I needed more than certainty more than a marked path on my way to God. I needed faith, which was not the same thing. In order to grow faith, I needed, in fact, more uncertainty in my life, more wilderness, more shadow. To put it another way, I began to understand that darkness was not the whole problem. One could also be blinded by the light. It's always important in a talk like this, I think in our day, anyone with a microphone is presumed to be trying to persuade you of the truth, and I don't know the truth about much of anything. It's important for you to relax, if you will, and hear me say that unless something sounds familiar to you or like something you could use to help yourself or someone you know, please let it go. Because the truth is, I teach college students, and full solar spirituality can and is a life raft for many of them. I do know other people, though, for whom, both young and old, for whom full solar can be a terrible burden. And yet, when it's the only kind they know, or the only kind available where they live, they don't always know what to do when the lights go off. Darkness descends on their lives in any number of predictable ways. They lose a loved one, or they can't find a job, or they lose the one they have, or they pray hard for something that does not happen. They do everything they have been taught to do, and they do it just right, and still there is no light. At which point some of them decide it's their fault, and others decide it's God's fault, or the God who clearly is not there because they cannot see a thing inside their dark cloud. So these are the people I worry about and love perhaps the most are those who chuck it all when they don't have to because no one ever taught them that the darkness can be divine. That's why I think it's important for all of us to continue my miserable computer analogy to check our folders on a regular basis, to update them, to reset our default settings. I have an idea, almost everyone has some kind of default setting where whatever you mean by dark is concerned. 
however they got there, through childhood memories or adult traumas, through today's headlines, last week's headlines, tomorrow's unknowns, I think there does come a time to bring them up for renewal, to decide whether they're still helping or whether they may in fact have started hurting instead by continuing to frighten you away from the places in your life where you may most need to go. That's what I ended up doing with darkness anyway. I realized that the time I had spent practicing full solar spirituality had saddled me with some heavy ideas about darkness that were getting in my way. None of us, I think, ever really wants to go dark, but think about it. If I stopped right now and asked you to draw me a twin lifeline of your life with the real events on the top half, your first true love, your last serious illness, your third cross-country move, and then below the line I asked you to chart the growth of your, you call it what you want, your self, your soul, your wisdom, your understanding. I think you might notice a surprising correlation that it, it goes sort of like this and that what many of us would call the darkest times in our lives have in fact been the times when we have taken on the most depth, when we've drawn nearest the divine heart of things and entered into the tenderest kind of kinship with every living creature. I don't like it a bit, but there it is. I wrote the book because I think that to run from the dark is to run from what makes us most human and that to reach for artificial light, we can talk later about what that means, to reach for artificial light every time things start looking dark, which can include artificial cheerfulness, artificial certainty. I've certainly toyed around with artificial faith. It can saddle us with a kind of darkness disability that can shallow our souls instead of deepening them. But again, I'm not writing anyone a prescription. Each of you has your own history of darkness, which only you, only you, and perhaps the people who love you most, have the instincts and the intelligence to navigate. For people who have suffered great trauma, or growing numbers of people who find out they're living with debilitating chemical imbalances, then keeping a respectful distance from the dark can make all kinds of sense. Full-time darkness, no better for anyone than full-time light. It's balance that many of us are missing. Or to put it another way, what many of us are missing is the ability to make peace with a life that has dark and light in it. Even when our highs and lows fall in the normal range, When we are certain about something one day, uncertain the next, nothing debilitating, nothing truly traumatic, there's still some of us who worry, especially in positive thinking cultures, I come from one, who worry that there's something wrong with us because the sun is sometimes gone, gone, gone. This is what I call garden variety, fear of the dark, and it's really all this book tries to address. If the elevator goes to the 10th floor in the basement, I'm right at the fifth floor in this book. But insofar as it's in my power, I would love to offer some relief to people who suffer from garden variety, fear of the dark. Because the flourishing of human life depends on regular cycles 
of being in the light and being in the dark. It depends on sunlight and moonlight, full sun and shade, on vision and total eclipse. I think this is as true at the spiritual level as it is at the physical level. Consider the lilies, how they grow. Leave one in the sun too long and it will wither. But leave one in the dark too long and it will never bloom. Of how much more value are you? It took me a while to find the parts of my Christian tradition that spoke of the divine darkness. I had always thought that there was only one Christian strain, really only one way of being faithful to God and Christ. But I'd heard some Buddhist friends talk about lineages, different lineages of teaching, and that woke me up. I realized all of a sudden there are all kinds of Christian lineages, not just Protestant and Catholic ones. There are activist lineages, contemplative lineages, feminist, liberationist, mystical lineages as well. I had to look all over the place for my lineage once I decided to learn more about divine darkness, but I found it a kind of minor lunar theme that ran underneath the brighter solar theme that has captivated the Christian imagination for so long. I found it in the Bible. I found it in history. I found it across the globe in a branch of Christianity I knew nothing about, Eastern Orthodoxy. So with the time I have left, briefly to touch on each of those for just a moment, the Bible, there are only about a hundred references to the literal words, dark and darkness, that's English. In the Hebrew, you've got to go a bit further. Only about a hundred on the list I had to look up. You'll hear some of the samples in a moment, but the verdict was unanimous. Darkness is very bad news, biblically speaking. In the First Testament, light stands for life and darkness stands for death. Sheol is dark as hell. When God is angry with people, they are plunged into darkness. Locusts darken the land. In the Second Testament, light stands for knowledge and darkness stands for ignorance. Matthew says in the King James Version of the Bible, if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. Evil, darkness. When the true light comes into the world, the story goes, the world doesn't know him. He's come so that people should not have to walk in darkness, but some people cannot be helped. My survey ended, except for the book of Revelation, it ended in the letter of Jude, verse 13. The people who can't be helped, Jude says, they are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars for whom the deepest darkness has been reserved forever. Yet even in the Bible, I found, that is not the whole story about darkness. Anyone who knows the story of Abraham remembers the night God led him outside to look at the stars on a night of great discouragement when God's promise of descendants had failed to come true so often that hope was little more than a habit. Instead of scolding the old man, God sent him outside and said, count the stars if you are able, for so shall your descendants be. That is not something that could have happened at high noon. It's a wonderful nighttime story. And once you get the hang of looking for them, they go on and on and on. 
Later, God would come to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in the middle of another night. After the boy had fled from the family, he had betrayed in the worst kind of way. When he could run no further, he lay down in the middle of nowhere with a stone for a pillow. And there he had his famous dream of a ladder with its feet on earth, its top in the heavens, and all the angels of God climbing up and down on it. That was when God said more or less the same thing to Jacob in the belly of that night that he had said to grandfather Abraham on another night. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It wasn't something that would have happened over lunch. The night vision, it was a key player in Jacob's decision to go on. Once you start noticing how many things happen at night in the Bible, the list grows fast. I get new entries all the time. Jacob wrestles an angel all night long on the bank of a river. Joseph dreams such dreams at night. He becomes a royal interpreter of dreams. The exodus from Egypt happens at night? I thought it was just an afternoon. Turns out, no, it was the night. God parted the Red Sea then at night. Manna fell from the sky at night. Yet none of those, and I'm only to about Exodus, was the kicker for me. The, the kicker came in around Exodus 19 when God makes an appointment to meet Moses at the top of Mount Sinai and says, clue, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud. I loved that. Mm. I'm going to come to you in a cloud. So I looked it up in every translation I could find, seeing if I could find out more about that dense cloud. I came up with thick cloud, thick darkness, heavy cloud, not helpful. <laughs> Inside of which was what? The unnameable name, which maybe goes along with the unseeable God. Hashem, the presence that is too potent for mortals to survive without major sunscreen, so God provided a cloud. You follow this image of the cloud once you're looking for it from Exodus to the book of Job, to Matthew and Mark and Luke, and you discover, I think, it's one of the two main ways the divine comes to the human in Scripture, inside a bright cloud and inside a dark cloud, in the wilderness of Sinai and on the Mount of Transfiguration, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, so if you decide you only want one of these, I'll take the light one, please. You keep the dark one. I think you may miss half of what the divine mystery has to offer. This view of darkness is far more nuanced than the one I got early on that demonized darkness. This darkness may be dangerous, but it is as sure a sign of God's presence as brightness is, which makes the fear of it, I think, different from the fear of snakes and robbers and things under the bed. When biblical writers speak of fear of the Lord, this may be what they mean, fear of God's pure, unseeable, unnameable being, so far beyond human imagining that trying to look straight into it would be like trying to look straight into the sun. When I took my first course in Christian mysticism at the age of 19, I learned to call it the Mysterium Tremendum. 
the terrible, the fascinating mystery of God, which exceeds the human ability to manage it in any way. I always like to think clergy are ordained to be divine handlers, but it doesn't always work. We end up wearing the collars. Mm -hmm. The Bible is full of characters who were transformed by entering into this cloud, but the thick cloud of God's presence, it didn't roll away at the end of the Bible. I'm now going to follow it into history, where it continued to inform the Christian imagination through all the years that followed. I could do this as a mere apprentice in some other religions of the world as well, but I'll stick with where I am. A Cappadocian monk named Gregory of Nyssa was the first to see that cloud of Moses as a cipher for everyone's spiritual life. Here's what he wrote in the fourth century. Moses' vision began with light, burning bush. Afterwards, God spoke to Moses in a cloud. But when Moses rose higher and became more perfect, he saw God in the darkness. In the same way, Gregory said, those of us who wish to draw near to God should not be surprised when our vision grows cloudy. For this, he says, is the sign that we are drawing near the opaque splendor of God. If we decide to keep going beyond the point where our eyes are any good, beyond the point where our reasonable minds are much good to us, Gregory says we may finally arrive at the pinnacle of the spiritual journey which exists in complete and dazzling darkness. There's a paradox. Fast forward a thousand years to the anonymous author of The Cloud of Unknowing, Cloud of Unknowing being taken from that same story in Exodus. This author says this darkness and cloud is always between you and God no matter what you do. I told you it's a minor theme. He said, it prevents you from seeing God clearly by the light of understanding in your reason and even from experiencing God in the sweetness of love in your affection. So set yourself to rest in this darkness as long as you can, always crying out after him whom you love. For if you are to experience him or see him at all insofar as it is possible here, it will always be in this cloud and in this darkness. Does that sound different to some of you? Cloudy vision is a good thing. God exists in darkness. This is a minor theme in the religion I learned first. Not minor as in insignificant, but minor as in a lesser known lineage. When I first heard it, it was so different from anything I had ever heard before that I had to find some place I could go to learn more about it. In another century, that might have been a convent or a cave, but my college advisor suggested seminary, so I did that instead. Not necessary at all for discovering the divine darkness, but helpful in my case because as a pretty unchurched, do-it-yourself young person, I had never known there were, I thought Protestants just were the only kind there were. And at seminary I learned there were three great branches of Christian faith. And that what was a minor theme in the Southern Protestantism I knew best was a major theme in Eastern Orthodoxy, which regards mysticism, that lineage, as the perfecting and crown of all theology. In that lineage, too much light is no good because it might make the divine darkness invisible. It might destroy 
to use a phrase from that tradition, the holy ignorance, holy ignorance, that is the only way to God. While human beings will never give up trying to domesticate deity, fashioning lassos made of illuminating concepts and clarifying dogmas, God will continue to dwell inside the cloud of unknowing where no such ropes can reach. All that matters inside that divine darkness, and now I quote an Orthodox scholar named Olivier Clément, all that matters is the nocturnal communion of the hidden God with the person who is hidden in God. So what might be gained from this nocturnal communion? What might be gained from learning to walk in the dark? Um, it's not a how-to book, it's a what-if book. Maybe you're a young person in deep need of faith right now, but the faith you have inherited from your elders is not cutting it. You want something with a sharper edge. You want something with a keener purpose. Frankly, you want more than sitting in a place like this and listening to someone else talk about things they think will help. You know it's out there, this deeper wisdom you're seeking, but where is it? Well, it may be time for a walk in the dark. If you're in the middle of your life, then maybe some of your dreams of God have died hard under the weight of your experience. Maybe you've knocked on a door that has not opened. Maybe you have asked for bread and been given a stone. Perhaps the job that once defined you has come to an end. Maybe the relationships that once sustained you have changed or also come to their natural ends. It has come time to reinvent everything from your work life to your love life to your life with God, only how are you supposed to do that exactly? The weekend workshops don't seem to be helping. Maybe time for a walk in the dark. If you're my age, and some of you are, then you're losing a lot more things than you once did. Not just your keys over and over. Not just your vision, but also your landmarks. Not so much in London, where I live a lot. Maybe even some of your sense of self, who you are, what you're worth in this world. When you go for your annual physical, your physician appears to be 19, 20 years old. <laughs> she touches nothing but the iPad balanced on her left forearm. As she asks you briskly how you're feeling, you say fine, because she's clearly in a hurry, but that's not nearly nuanced enough. The truth is, you are going to so many more funerals than you used to. The truth is, every time you get your alumni news, your class is nearer and nearer the top, and you know where this is heading. Shouldn't you be getting ready? Isn't there something you can do to prepare for this really ultimate walk in the dark? Well, maybe it's time for a little practice on this side. Well, there's a lot to be said for communal spiritual practice, doing things together. No one, I think, can walk this particular walk for you. They can walk with you, but I think this walking in the dark may call for solo courage, kind of outward bound. Do you have that here for the soul? Mm -hmm. yeah. And yet, according to those who have gone before, the witnesses, a dark night of the soul is not a sign that something has gone wrong. It is not. Instead, it is a sign that your current way of knowing has come to an end and the path before you now 
perhaps for a little ways, perhaps for a long ways, is a path of unknowing. With a little luck, you'll step onto the path of knowing again later, but it's a, a mixed grill. So the dark night of the soul, in this sense, becomes a sign that the cloud of unknowing has opened up to let you in and thinks that you can handle it. At least if you're willing to give up what you think you know about what is inside. In his book on the nightlife of the soul called Dark Nights, plural of the soul, Thomas More, one O-M-O-R-E, he says that the best way to deal with the dark night of the soul is to be made luminous by it. Not enlightened, he goes on, but translucent. You are not the eye seeing in the dark. You are the candle being burnt for its luminosity. I title this talk Redeeming Darkness because I hope you'll help me do that. I think it may be time, if not to give up, then at least to explore the kind of thinking that pits darkness against light, loading each of those words, each of those concepts with only half of the truth about what it means to be fully human. Our imaginations, they're richer than that. Our lives can bear more truth. To live a fully human life on this earth is to live in the dark and in the light, under brother sun and sister moon, walking the sacred way of unknowing for part of the way and accepting the sacred way of unknowing when the path runs out without ever forgetting our own capacity for being luminous, even when we cannot see the way ahead. So that, I think, is the real promise of walking this walk. It is our capacity, as we learn to walk in the dark, to be light in this world, not as an enemy of the dark, but as its consummation and leaven and friend. Thank you very much.